In the town of LaPorte, Indiana, at the beginning of the 20th century, lived a quiet widow with her children. But all was not as it seemed. That's ahead this week on Footnoting History. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. In this episode, I want to return to a theme mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago by Leslie, the murderess in history, and one case in particular that I stumbled on about a year ago uh, during a random Wikipedia trawl. And before we begin, I actually want to acknowledge a great debt to the 2001 dissertation of Paula Hinton on this topic, as it's one of the very few scholarly studies of this case. Our story begins about two hours before dawn on the morning of Tuesday, April 28, 1908, in the quiet town of Laporte in northern Indiana, about 50 miles southeast of Chicago. Laporte had a population of about 9,000, and on the north side of town lived a Norwegian immigrant widow, Belle Gunness, with her three children. Belle's husband, second husband I should say, uh, Peter Gunness, had died in an accident six years before only eight months into their marriage. Since her husband's death, Belle had relied on a series of hired hands to help her manage her small acreage. And it was the most recent of these hired men, Joseph Maxson, who awoke in the pre-dawn hours to discover that the Gunness house was on fire. Now, Maxson lived in the back end of the house, and his attempts to gain entrance to the front of the house, where Belle and her children lived, were met with locked doors. Despite his efforts, and those of neighbors who soon showed up, they could not rouse the family. A ladder to the second floor showed that the beds were strangely empty. Soon the whole building was ablaze, and eventually it collapsed. Once the ashes had cooled enough for investigation, a search that afternoon, led by the sheriff, found the bodies of a woman and three children in the cellar, where they had presumably fallen in the collapse of the structure. Scandalized by this untimely death, local suspicion for the arson immediately fell on Ray Lamphere, who had been Bell's hired hand the previous year. Of French-Canadian extraction, Ray had a reputation as a debauched drunk, and the local rumor mill soon spun out a tale of his unrequited obsession with Bell, which had clearly led her to terminate his employment. He had since harassed the widow, who pressed charges against him and even tried to have him declared mentally incompetent. In retaliation, Ray had obviously set the fire in some sort of fit of passion and pique. He had probably poisoned the family to prevent them from escaping the blaze, and so the remains were sent off for testing. This was the stuff of high melodrama, absolute catnip for a town like Laporte. For five days, the tragedy which had befallen the widow Gunness and her children at the hands of Ray Lamphere was the talk of the town, and it dominated the headlines of the local papers. Until Sunday, May 3rd. On that day, a man named Osla Helgelein showed up in Laporte. He was there to find his brother, Andrew, who had farmed with him in South Dakota, but had left in January and had not returned. It seems Andrew had answered an ad placed by Bell in a regional Norwegian-language newspaper. She was on the hunt for a husband. Now, a Lonely Hearts ad in and of itself was not that unusual for the time. This was, of course, an age well before Tinder or OkCupid. For a single woman with several children like Belle in the early 20th century, finding a husband was a practical financial consideration, and it seems logical that she would seek stability 
and companionship with other members of the Norwegian immigrant community. Andrew had told Asla that he would return in a week. Months passed, and Asla grew increasingly concerned. He wrote to Belle to find out what had happened to his brother. She claimed that Andrew had only stayed a week before leaving, uh, possibly to see family in Norway, but that he intended on returning to her eventually. In further letters, she claimed to have sent Ray, who was still working for her at the time, to South Dakota to find Andrew, before saying that, ah, at last, she had heard from him. He was in Chicago, and about to head to Norway. Yet Andrew sent no word to Asla, despite the fact that the two were very close. After four months, with no sign or message, Bell finally told Asla to come join her in Indiana, and they would go looking for him. Oh, and while he was at it, could he sell off Andrew's livestock and bring her the money when he came? The shifting story and request to bring money put Asla on his guard, especially when he learned that Andrew had wired much of his life savings, $3,000, to a bank in Laporte. Still, he did come in search of his brother, only to immediately learn about Bell's demise a few days before. On the 5th of May, two days after arriving in Laporte, and a week to the day after the fire, he went out to the remains of Bell's house, where Joseph Maxson was still working, clearing away the ashes. Something about this whole affair didn't sit right with Asla, so he asked Maxson if he had dug any holes or pits on the property. Again, this would have been relatively commonplace. In an era before garbage trucks, many people, particularly in rural communities, would simply dig a hole somewhere on their property, fill it up with their trash, and then cover it over. And so the two men began digging in one of Bell's dumping spots, and underneath the cans of fish and tomatoes, they found a dismembered torso, legs, arms, and a head. It was the body of Andrew Helgeline. After the sheriff was notified, holes started to cover the property as they began a search for more bodies. And soon they found another, and another, and another. By the time they were done, 11 bodies had been discovered, 9 male and 2 female. All had been dismembered, the bodies and limbs put in gunny sacks and buried under trash. Belle Gunnis, it seems, had been a busy woman. But Belle wasn't her real name, at least not originally. She was born Brynhild Palsdatter in November of 1859 in the remote village of Selba, Norway. She had come to the United States a month before her 22nd birthday, and for over a decade lived in Chicago. At the age of 34, in 1893, she finally married for the first time. Her husband, Mad Sorensen, was employed as a department store detective, but the two soon opened up their own sweet shop, uh, which did not go so well and burned down a year after they opened it. Together, they had four children, only two of which, Myrtle and Lucy, would survive infancy. The couple also took in a girl named Jenny Olsen, who may have been Belle's niece, uh, but whose father was still living. The details on this are a little murky. One day, in July of 1900, Mads came home from work, and then he took a post-dinner nap, from which he never awakened. When the police arrived, Belle told them that he had complained of uh, some kind of stomach pain, and he had taken some medicine, but when she discovered his dead body on the couch, she threw it out. The cause of death was listed by the coroner as stomach hemorrhage. As Paula Hinton observes, 
it was exceedingly fortunate that Mads had chosen to die on this particular day, as it was the only day that his old and new life insurance policies overlapped. Belle did not stay long in the Chicago suburb where she and her husband had made their home, and by November 1901 had moved with her children to LaPorte, Indiana. By the following April, she had remarried, this time to a farmer, Peter Gunnis. Peter had two children of his own, Swanhild and a seven-month-old infant who only died a week into their marriage. By September, Belle was pregnant again. In December 1902, eight months after Belle and Peter's marriage, a doctor was summoned to the Gunnis house in the middle of the night. When he arrived, he found Peter Gunnis lying on the floor of the living room, dead of a fractured skull and cerebral hemorrhaging. Belle said that the couple were getting ready for bed when Peter, as he went to put his shoes behind the stove so that they would be warm in the morning, knocked over part of a sausage mill where it had been sitting on a shelf above the stove and it had fallen on him. Stumbling, he had also turned over a pot of hot water on the stove, and this scalded him. According to Bell, Peter had lived through the incident, moaning rather loudly, and had passed the night in pain downstairs. Bell had slept upstairs with her children, but awoke in the night to check on her husband. By the time the doctor finally arrived, Peter Gunnis was dead, face down on the floor. But the story didn't completely line up. The medical examiner could not find any burn marks from the hot water anywhere on Peter's body. And why was he face down on the floor of the living room? Certain details from the children's testimony did not match Bell's, and her sequence of events didn't entirely make sense. Nevertheless, Peter Gunnis's death was ruled an accident, and Bell received a payment of $3,500 from his insurance policy. The year after Peter's death, Swanhild's uncle came and removed her from Bell's house. The girl would later testify that she had been terrified of Bell. Swanhild's fate was much better than that of Jenny Olson, Bell's ward who she supposedly adopted, but there's no clear record of this. Jenny at one point had gone to live with her father, but Bell somehow persuaded the girl to return. After 1906, no one in Laporte saw her again and Belle told people she had gone to a school in California. In reality, she had never left the farm, and was one of the two female bodies found in the search of the property. So, who were the other eight men and one woman? After the discovery of Andrew Helgeline's body, details and accounts came flooding in. For the last six years, Belle had been putting marriage ads in papers across the Midwest, especially ones targeted at Scandinavian immigrants advertising herself as a well-off widow with fertile land in search of a husband. Belle would engage the men who answered her ad in extensive correspondence, where she feigned devotion and gave them promises of marriage. She would then invite them to visit her in Laporte, so men made the journey from Minnesota, Wisconsin, the Dakotas, Michigan. Come, she had written to Andrew Helgeline, prepared to stay forever. In each case, Bell predicated her acceptance of marriage on the man's ability to prove financial solvency, usually in the form of bringing large sums of cash with them. Uh, Bell repeatedly told these men that uh, she didn't trust banks. Um, this was, of course, in an era before the Great Depression and the creation of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. These men would arrive at the Gunnis home, perhaps be seen by a few people around town, and then never heard of again. 
Soon, friends and relatives began to pour into Laporte to identify the bodies, telling stories of male relatives who had disappeared. Other men recounted how they had answered Belle's ads, but were put off by her requests for money. Some had even gone so far as to come to Laporte and stayed with Belle, only to discover her messing with the doorknob to their room or awakened to find her standing over them in the middle of the night. Several mentioned that there were a few rooms in the house into which they were forbidden to look. The post-fire search of the ruins of the Gunness estate had turned up a set of men's watches. Authorities now knew how they had gotten there. The other female body was never positively identified. The revelation of Bell's grisly activities turned Laporte upside down for the next month. Area papers reported that on the Sunday after the discovery of the bodies, People came in by train and flocked to the Gunness farm with picnic baskets. Vendors set up shop on the site selling ice cream and postcards. The story of the bodies was reported in the New York Times and even reached papers in Cuba. Bell's crimes became a moralizing point for commentators about domesticity and the supposed criminal proclivities of immigrants who failed to fully assimilate into American society. Bell, however, was not alive to answer for her crimes and the matter of who set the fire to her house still had to be settled. Suspicion firmly remained on Ray Lamphere. He was charged not only with arson, but also as an accomplice in the murder of Andrew Helgeline. On the charge of murder, he was acquitted, but he was found guilty of arson and sentenced to 2 to 21 years in the Indiana State Penitentiary. He died there the following year of tuberculosis. But did Ray Lamphere actually set the fire? It's impossible to say. There are a few details in all of this that I haven't told you. When they discovered Belle's body, along with that of her children in the cellar of her house, it was missing its head, right arm, and lower right leg. Measurements of the remains put the height of the woman at around five foot two, but Belle was five foot seven. Moreover, a piano from the ground floor had fallen through to the cellar and landed on top of the bodies during the fire, but the bedrooms were on the second floor, which means that the bodies should have been on top of the piano. When the remains of Bell's children were studied, the medical examiner determined that they had died not of fire, but of poisoning. Their stomachs contained traces of arsenic and strychnine, and they each suffered skull fractures. These are not painless poisons. Arsenic causes extreme gastrointestinal distress and stomach cramps. Strychnine is a neurotoxin that causes the muscles to lock up. Uh, if you've ever seen someone in early film or television be poisoned, especially anything Agatha Christie, she really liked using strychnine to kill people. Uh, they do that thing where their back arches up off the bed and they tense up. That is what strychnine poisoning looks like. Bell's children did not die peacefully in their sleep. And anyway, how could Ray Lamphere have possibly gotten in to poison the family? Although nothing could be conclusively proven, there was enough doubt around Bell's death to suggest strongly that she did not die in the fire, but instead had poisoned her own children, and placed the decapitated corpse of another woman with theirs in the cellar before taking her stockpile of cash from the men she had murdered and making her escape. For years afterwards, people claimed to have seen a woman matching Belle's description all over the United States. For decades, her legend lived on in Laporte, 
though the town quickly sought to put the whole business behind them as celebrity turned to notoriety. The spot once occupied by Bell's home is now private property, but it sits near to a park and a series of lakes. If you ever find yourself there on a Sunday in May, it does look like a lovely spot for a picnic. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.